there's no harm with taking your phone and filming a little video of, uh, you know, 30 seconds of your dinner church and sending it to your bishop, which I've done hundreds of times saying, hey, thank you for letting me be at this assignment. Here's a little bit of the fruit of our ministry together. And now that's, is that kissing up? No, that's leading up. Welcome to Pivot. I'm Terry Elton from Luther Seminary. And I'm Dwight Shiley, also from Luther Seminary, and welcome to this episode where we are thrilled to have as our guest, George Acevedo, who is the lead pastor of Grace Church in Cape Coral, Florida. It's actually a multi-site church, so you can tell us a little bit about that. And um, George has been involved in cultivating innovative ministries of various sorts for, for many years, and we invited him to share a bit about what does this work look like from the perspective of someone who is overseeing and, and leading a, a fast-growing congregation? George, welcome to the Pivot Podcast. We're so excited to have you here. It's really good to be with you. Tell us a little bit about your story okay. and tell us a bit about the story of Grace Church. Sure. Well, I am a, a first-generation follower of Jesus. I was not raised in a Christian home. Actually, uh, came to Christ through a parachurch ministry that was working in our high school. And uh, in some ways, uh, from hour one, it was baked into kind of my spiritual uh, history uh, of these kind of non-traditional ways of reaching folk, because I didn't go to summer camp or vacation Bible school or walk the aisle on a Sunday morning. Uh, I came to Christ uh, through a ministry that held meetings in a apartment complex uh, community center and uh, actually uh, gave my life to Christ using that little four spiritual laws book uh, in my parents' living room a few days before my 18th birthday as a senior in high school. And to celebrate the fact that I had become a Christian, uh, I went out with my best friend, Greg, and smoked a joint uh, to celebrate the fact that I was a follower uh, of Jesus. So, uh, as I, and I tell my congregation and friends and pastors when I speak at conferences and things, you know, uh, if you're going to reach pre-Christian folk, remember, they don't come with the decoder ring. They don't understand all the rules and those kinds of things. Uh, and, and my life was a mess, but it was not the traditional, what we call in uh, today, the inherited church, the church on the corner of Maine and Maple with a beautiful sign and a wonderful kids ministry. It wasn't that kind of church that reached me. It was the body of Christ in this, what we might call a fresh expression of church. Uh, we didn't call it that in the 70s, but that's what it was. It was a it was a space, a place, and a people that was uh, created and cultivated uh, to reach high school students who wouldn't probably not come to uh, a traditional youth group. So it was baked into my spiritual history and, and DNA. Uh, six months later, I landed in a United Methodist church in the late 70s going through charismatic renewal and uh, uh, was in that church where I was discipled and called and sent out uh, into ministry and uh, uh, graduated from Asbury College and Asbury Seminary and uh, met uh, my uh, wife, who we've been married now for 41 years, in that youth group at that church. We married early and had kids early. And then uh, following seminary, served as an associate and youth pastor, and then uh, at, for four years, four years as an executive pastor. And then I've been at Grace Church for 27 years. Uh, and this August, uh, I'll be stepping away after uh, 27 years. 
I'll be stepping away from my role as lead pastor. Uh, we've been in a, about of a four-year secession plan. I'll be stepping into a ministry of coaching and writing and speaking. So uh, for the whatever uh, season God gives me. Grace Church uh, is a United Methodist congregation that, like a lot of mainline churches, uh, was struggling uh, when I came 27 years ago, had peaked uh, five or six years earlier uh, in its worship attendance, uh, and was on this kind of steady decline, ironically, in one of the fastest growing communities in America, uh, Cape Coral, Florida, uh, percentage-wise, per capita-wise, a fast-growing community. And so for the last uh, 27 years, uh, we've been seeking to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. I would say that Grace Church is passionately outwardly focused, and uh, that's been something that a kind of a culture that we've created over the years. You know, 15, 10, 15 years ago, we were doing big outreach events uh, out in our parking lot and having thousands of people coming to those kinds of events. And you could trace people's spiritual journey from uh, a fall festival held in our parking lot to uh, coming to our services, to giving their lives to Christ, to baptisms, to disciple experiences, to mission trips, uh, to getting called into the ministry and serving as a staff person or even pastors in the life of our church. What I, we discovered about 10 years ago is that our attractional style of ministry that had worked splendidly for us, we were doing better at it and seeing less results. Does that make sense? We were getting better at music, better at kids' ministry, better at our preaching even, better at those kinds of things, but yet not seeing, we just saw that the, the, that our ROI, return on investment, wasn't as rabid as it had been in the early 10 to 15 years of our ministry here. And it, it began to leave a scratch in our head saying, what, what was going on? And I think we now know that what was going on is kind of the last gasps of Christendom. Uh, I'm in the South, and the kind of the last gasps of Christendom were happening. Uh, our culture was shifting, and we needed to find new strategies to reach new people. And that's when we bumped into the Fresh Expressions uh, um, movement out of the UK. I actually did a, 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 a pilgrimage there and uh, learned about fresh expressions and the mixed e ecology uh, um, experimentation that they were going through. They were 10, 15 years ahead of us. Uh, they were speaking to us from the future, if you will, uh, about this movement. And so we've been experimenting, I guess, about close to 10 years now uh, in the fresh expressions movement. So I'd like to step into that moment. I was uh, working in a large mega church around some of these things and can kind of put myself there, right? The attractional model, we can do it better, and it doesn't necessarily mean more people are coming, right? And yet, I think often that's the mindset that that we have gone. How did you get started turning that? I mean, here's here's a church that is outward focused, right? But it was through a particular way, right? A attractional model of ministry. How did you, you came back from that training, you came back with that imagination for you. Tell me about what that first stage of work was like. Yeah, I, I, you know, when when you've been in a church a long time, there's the, hopefully what grows is is a, is amount, uh, a, a, a certain amount of trust uh, in, you, you gain some leadership capital. One of the things that I would say we cultivated from day one here is a is a culture of of high experimentation, uh, and and so 
it really wasn't, I mean, uh, I like to tell folks our step into fresh expressions wasn't a big, uh, big leap. It was a, it was a stretch, but it wasn't a leap because we had been doing stretches all along. We bought a $6 million grocery store, ran it for 10 years as a community center. It just got to be too overhead building heavy, sold it at a several million dollar loss. And I still kept my job uh, as the lead pastor. I led through all of that. And and so our church was willing to experiment even to the point where it, where we didn't do well uh, in terms of, um, I mean, we fed 250,000 people in 10 years. It's not like we didn't do well. We, we did good work, but it, we just couldn't make the business side of, of, uh, of an eight and a half acre, you know, 57,000 square feet piece of property work for us. And I would say that that, if you will, that, that failure, uh, you, you know, they say fail forward, that failure made us question the wisdom of building a ministry around a simply come to model. So out of that failure, we said, can we do all of these models in a go-to model? What does it look like for us to, to have a go-to model? So then when I went to the Fresh Expressions pilgrimage with my bishop and some others and began to see that folks were doing things in community centers and parks, in bars, uh, and even on church campuses that were sitting empty six and a half days a week, and they were reinventing spaces to reach people who were not coming in the door on Sunday morning at 10 or 11 in the morning, but might come on Tuesday to a recovery meeting or to an art thing or to a music thing uh, around hobbies and habits that, that people are engaged in. Again, it wasn't a stretch for us. I would say uh, I just simply began to, to uh, invite some of our leaders to read some of the literature. Uh, and in those days, it was literature from the UK. There wasn't a lot being written here in the US at that point. And uh, to watch videos and to uh, experiment uh, with this. We hosted, I got invited to host a dinner church training. And uh, one of our staff, Heather Evans, uh, attended that. And that was that was for us that God moment that you just can't create. She was, if you will, the person of favor in our church who has the apostolic gifts to lead it. And she was on our staff. Her own personal narrative is uh, she had been a teacher in a very exclusive private school. She came to work on our staff, helped us launch some remarkable ministries, particularly in kids' ministries, went back to a low-income school, and there she began to build bridges between her experience as a children's director and her experience as a teacher in low-income housing and saying, is there a way for our church to impact those children? And she knew that Fresh Expressions would be that. So she then took it and she's run with it and taken it to great, great uh, new levels of experimentation in the life of our church. So, you know, we have a culture of outreach that that made it a stretch, not a not a leap. And then and then we had the person uh, of peace, if you will, the person of favor who have felt the call to lead that. And those those were really the early days. And we've experimented We've we've started more fresh expressions that have not made it than have, and that's just been a part of the culture of our church because they're very inexpensive and they often yield great fruit. 
So tell us a little bit more about some of those stories and, and maybe even beginning with uh, what Heather did in experimenting with that that ministry and that dinner church uh, in the trailer park, if I understand correctly. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, our first uh, entree was not the trailer park. Our first entree was into a uh, uh, it's similar. It's uh, a hunger drought community about four miles from us. It's called Suncoast and Suncoast has the second largest trailer park in the southeast of America. It's it's generations of working poor, particularly Anglo folk, that are stuck in cycles of poverty and addiction. They were their children were in the elementary school that we had been providing reading mentors for. Our our church had a reading mentors ministry there. And so we already had relationship with some parents and some kids through that. And uh, we found that there was a community center there that sat empty most days. And so we said, we're going to experiment with a dinner church in this empty community center. And I think we paid $100 a week to use the community center. And uh, we cooked the food at our church kitchen here, had some volunteers come and do that. And then we would serve the food and sit with our neighbors and share together what we call pows and wows. How has life powed them and how has life wowed them? Uh, we eventually started introducing a Jesus story and uh, and dinner church. And church broke out in that dinner church space. And we began to see people uh, coming to faith. Uh, we began to have baptisms. We did funerals and weddings in this community center uh, and ran that for many, many, many years until some change happened at the county with the community center. And they kind of basically kicked us out. And so uh, we've been, uh, we've moved that to a new space, um, not far uh, from there. And that continues uh, until today, uh, where every Monday, uh, we do uh, a dinner church in a new space, a similar space uh, uh, in that community. When uh, COVID hit in this early spring of 2020, we had just begun uh, sensing a call to another trailer park. And I believe that's the one, uh, uh, Dwight, that you're talking about. Another trailer park, just three or four miles from us as well, that's primarily filled with undocumented folk uh, from South and Central America. Uh, They had a church next door and that church graciously allowed us to use their social hall that opens out to the trailer park. We were able to reach uh, through that launch of that dinner church, a, a fair number of folk who were English speaking, but we could never have breakthrough with our Spanish speaking neighbors. They would show up, but we just never had breakthrough. And then on September 28th of 2022, uh, a Cat 4 hurricane, Hurricane Ian came through, filled that church with water and destroyed that trailer park. It just devastated the trailer park. And it was interesting that that tragedy opened the door for us to engage with our Spanish-speaking neighbors. We met the the grandma of the trailer park, Maria, and uh, she opened a door for us to begin ministering in the trailer park, uh, helping them with rebuilding. We're in the process now. Uh, We have mission teams coming from all over the country and helping us rebuild those trailers. And uh, we've since then bought a food truck that we take into the trailer park and we set up tables and we do dinner church. And now it's 
primarily with our Spanish-speaking friends. We have some interpreters that we've raised up that help us uh, from the trailer park. And and church is breaking out around tables uh, there as we are rebuilding that community one trailer at a time. It's remarkable. It's a beautiful thing. One of the things that occurred to me as you were telling that story is you have to have a, a vision of a long game, not a short game. Absolutely. And and what I'm wondering is twofold. One, what's your hoped for end when you try these experiments, whether it's dinner church in a trailer park or some other thing? What's your hoped for kind of what are the signs that you keep going if that happens? And then how do you raise up leaders to kind of do this work? Yeah, that's a great question. Our, our hope is the same for our fresh expressions of church that it is for our inherited church here on the corner of Hancock Bridge Parkway in Southeast 21st Place. We we don't think that there's two missions. There's only one mission, and that mission is to make disciples, uh, apprentices of Jesus, followers of Jesus. And uh, I think Jesus in the Great Commission tells us how to do that. He says, go. You have to take the initiative. He doesn't say come to. He says, go. He says, uh, uh, teach. That's disciple making. Uh, uh, baptize, I'm sorry, that's initiating, teach, that's that the formational part of, of the discipleship process, and obey, that's the sending part, the more missional part of what it means to follow Christ. It's the what Jim Collins calls the flywheel, you know, it's the flywheel of disciple making, where you go, you baptize, you initiate, you teach, you form people, and then you 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 teach them to obey, to send them out into the community so that we can reach more people. Uh, we have four words. We use reach, connect, form, send. It's kind of our disciples' path. And so there's not two disciples' path, one for the inherited church and then one for these fresh expressions of church. There's just one, and that's to make disciples. And so, you know, our highest aspiration is to help people take their next step with God, and so that has meant, for example, uh, in some of these trailer parks, what we've done is we've started Bible studies. We we do a, a a women's gathering once a month, a women's breakfast that's turned into a time where we do birthing parties, you know, for moms or for new moms, or, or uh, we do, and 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 yes, they come and they share their lives together, but they grow in God. In that, that's become a disciple making space that was birthed out of the fresh expression space, ironically held back at the inherited church because we have the space for it there. So our aspirations are to, to grow folks uh, in their in their disciple making. So there's a symbiotic relationship between the inherited church and the fresh expressions of church. And we believe that when it's done well, it's tethered. It really is tethered. They are tethered together. So the majority of our Startup leadership comes from the inherited church. So part of what uh, our our responsibility is as shepherds and teachers is to discover who are the apostles, prophets, evangelists, evangelists. So the Ephesians for Apest, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherds, teachers. The shepherd teachers tend to be the inherited church folk. They're the folks that that, that care for those. Uh, who grow up disciples in the life of what we would call the church. The apostles, prophets, and evangelists, we typically kick them out or we try to domesticate them. Shepherd teachers tend to. And so what we've discovered uh, is, oh, no, Fresh Expressions is a place to release your apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Instead of running them off, 
Then they get mad at the church and they, you know, all those kinds of things because we're not, we're not prophetic enough. We're not making a difference in the community. We don't care about the poor. We don't care about those on the margins. No, no, release them, give them a space to live in their full entrepreneurial beauty because apostles, prophets, and evangelists are messy. You know, they're the ones that will take on hell with a squirt gun, you know. And so we, what we've tried to do is create a safe space, if you will, for them to do the dangerous ministry of Jesus. What we try to do is regularly in our worship experiences and in our, you know, our media spaces is have little short videos. Uh, come join us uh, in dinner church or come join us as a part of this rebuilding team. Or we have a, another one of my, I would call it my favorite fresh expression is called exceptional entrepreneurs. Uh, it's a space and a place that we've created for aged out special needs young adults. One of the things we discovered in our community is that the poverty rate, divorce rate for families with adult special needs, when they age out of the system, in most states it's 21 or 22, they sit at home. There's typically a single mom who's living under the poverty line because dad left a long time ago because it was too hard. And she's raising this 32-year-old intellectually challenged person or even physically challenged person. So we created a respite space that is a church. It meets Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And uh, we've created a little cottage industry around that where they create products. But what we're really doing is creating disciples. And I've done baptism services there. They do prayer. They have worship there. And their families, which are typically completely disconnected from any local church, find that that becomes their church. Parents begin to support one another. So we have staff that kind of oversees that. And we're taking folks from the inherited church. It's typically a one-on-one ratio. for So we have about 20 special needs adults, young adults, and older adults even now uh, in that ministry. And we typically have one adult that it takes to be with them because it's a wood shop and other kinds of things. And where are those volunteers coming? They're coming from the chairs and the pews of our campuses as we send them out to do that kind of work. The beautiful thing, though, is to watch folks from the fresh expression then become a part of the leadership as well. So whenever we launch these things, we always try to have a handful of folks that are from the community. They don't even have to be followers of Jesus yet, because sometimes doing the work of Jesus, they become followers of Jesus. So they do the things that Jesus did, and all of a sudden they're they're crazy Christ followers. Uh, uh, but that that's their church. Um, they seldom show up in the big sanctuary, a hundred feet from me down the, down the hallway. So one of the things I love about the stories you're sharing is how holistic your approach is. You're super clear on we're about making disciples of Jesus, mm-hmm. and yet you are meeting people where they're at in their experiences of suffering, loss, vulnerability, struggle, and loving them. I'm curious just if you would speak a little bit about that holistic approach and what you've learned about the importance of it. Yeah. So part of my personal narrative, I I don't think any of us could ever get away from the fact that our personal narrative often defines our theology and our practice of ministry. So I came out of an adult I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic, a drug addict, uh, by the grace of God, clean and sober for over 40 years. And so uh, when I became a lead pastor and and, uh, had had at least a a modicum of of, uh, authority, we launched a recovery ministry 23 years ago. 
what I didn't know then, which I know now, is that really our recovery ministry was really our first entree into Fresh Expressions of Church. It was a fresh expression at the Inherited Church, but it was bringing a whole different population into our church as we became a Christ-centered 12-step recovery program where we named Jesus as our higher power. And so over the 23 years, we've helped hundreds and thousands of people come to faith in Christ and grow in their discipleship using the 12 steps as a model for discipleship. And I personally, this is just a personal, this is, you don't have to agree with me on this one. I personally believe the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is the single best disciple making process on the planet today. Uh, And we shouldn't be surprised, Bill W. and that team got it out of the scriptures. Uh, Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount uh, was very uh, profoundly influenced the early movement of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so in the in the culture of our church was already embedded this idea that we could help people in some non-traditional ways, meaning Sunday morning, 8.30 service, Sunday school, or Sunday school and the 11 o'clock service. We could create a space, a people, a place, and a process for people with addictions, afflictions, and compulsive behaviors, hurts, habits, and hangups to grow in their discipleship. But that was happening inside of the church, and that that did spread into the life of our congregation. We have a prayer that we pray, Dwight, for the 27 years I've been here, and that's, Lord, send us the people nobody else wants or sees. We've added to that prayer, and Lord, now send us to the people that nobody else wants or sees. I, I believe leaders, uh, spiritual leaders, have three main responsibilities. They build healthy, holy teams. And those teams cultivate transformational environments. And that's art more than science. And that has to do with your theology and your practices. And then thirdly, they they develop fruitful disciple-making processes and recognize that that is unique and has to be contextualized and all of those kinds of things. So we build teams, create cultures, and, and, and fruitful processes for disciple-making. And I think those things taken together are what have allowed us to expand our vision beyond what we would call the spiritual things of life. I am out of the Wesleyan tradition, and we kind of hold together the temporal and eternal realities of life. And it is a kind of messy uh, place that we live in. I call it rubbing dirt on it. we got to rub some dirt on it. And so we try to rub dirt on it. So we feed lots of people. Uh, we clothe lots of people. We help house lots of people. Uh, but we also anoint people with oil and pray for healing, you know. And I don't think it's an either-or thing. It's a both-and thing. So you talked about being part of the United Methodist Church. How is it like to be a, do this really innovative, non-traditional ministry connected to a mainline denomination and in years a global uh, denomination that can be messy in its own institutional church right Sure. Right. In that sure. way. Yeah. My, my tribe is, you know, it's uh, like a lot of the mainline tribes has struggled. And, uh, you know, I, it's interesting. I never questioned why God had me. You know, I mean, I, I, I think I think more entrepreneurial and kind of what you might call more independently minded kind of congregations. Uh, but I've always wanted to be a part of a tribe of folks that we could do better together than we could apart. Uh, community matters. And so I would say that for the most part, 
our ministry has been welcomed and embraced. I've spent uh, recently, I'm moving towards retirement, so we're counting a lot of things. Like uh, I've spoken at over 150 conferences uh, in my tribe for the most part. I mean, there's a handful that were outside of the UM circles. And so I would say that's been a good thing. And I would say until recently, as you know, things are really bubbling up in our tribe right now. Until recently, till the till the last several years, very much welcomed with open arms. It's been a little bit different here as of late, but I, I don't want to speak ill of my of my beloved tribe, you know. So it, I would say for the most part, it's been a welcoming thing. It's not been, uh, yeah. Surely there's going to be folks that hold uh, you at suspect because you're doing things outside of the norm. I'm not sure that Martin Luther won the most valuable player award uh, during his day as he tried some new innovative kinds of things, uh, new ways of thinking and doing. Uh, Neither did Mr. Wesley. Most of the time he got hit in the head with rocks and all kinds of stuff. So I've not been, you know, I've not been voted out of the, off the island. I've not been uh, uh, hit with rocks. So I would say for the most part, I'd say it's been okay. Don't know if I answered your question. No, that's great. I think there's a generosity in what you've said, but there's also, I think, an expectation. Let me just see if I'm hearing you right, that you're not asking them to be what you are, right? Or to see everything your way, but to have a relationship and to say, can we be church together? That's that would be you said it so much better than I wish I had well, said no. that. That's, yeah, but I think I hear as I listen to especially our graduates that have that do have a missional imagination about the kind of church you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Expect the church body, the institutional church, to get them to, to and support it and do all that. And it's not always going to be that way. In fact, no. it's rarely that way. Yeah, but also you don't have to walk away and ignore them, right? What would you say to some new pastors going in yeah. that we're going to do this combination of inherited church and fresh expressions? So I would say I would give to you the mantra out of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is growth by attraction, not by promotion. Uh, bishop Peter Story, a Methodist bishop uh, who was serving in Johannesburg uh, during apartheid in South Africa. Uh, spoke at a pastor's conference when I was a, a wee young, wet behind the ear, fresh out of seminary pastor. And he told the story of, of them gathering together, uh, white Christians and black Christians, which was against the law, against the apartheid laws. And during the Q&A, somebody asked him, well, weren't you worried about getting in trouble uh, with the authorities? So again, you have to translate this into church life. And because uh, I've had those moments, if we stretch, am I, am I going to get the call from headquarters to say, you know, stop, don't do that, whatever. He said this line. He said, I had to determine, we had to determine whether we were going to shout at the darkness or light candles. And that struck me as a young pastor said, you know, I'm just going to light candles. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight headquarters. I'm just going to light candles. Yeah. There've been a few that have tried to blow it out, but for the most part, I have to say that the institution has kind of taken notice and said, Oh, you know, because I've always tried to root it not only in scripture, but also in our Wesleyan tradition, our kind of unique Wesleyan tradition. And it's hard to argue. I say it's hard to argue with Jesus and John Wesley in, in my tribe, you know. Uh, it's hard, kind of hard to argue. If, if you can, 
if you can find a text in Wesley and a text in Jesus, you typically can win the day, uh, regardless of, you know, where you are on the theological prism or practice of ministry, you know, in terms of being institutional or entrepreneurial. The other thing that I would say to a young pastor is you do yourself a favor by learning to lead up well. Because I know that as a local church pastor, you know, we now have a staff of 80, 90 people, three campuses and, you know, 501c3s and all kinds of stuff. And I always tell our folks, uh, surprises are bad. They just always are. So whenever we've tried to do some of these innovative things, I've always let my uplines know because surprises are bad. And that's leading up well. And the other piece that I would say, this this one's for free. Uh, The other thing I would say is, you know, there's nothing, there's no harm with taking your phone and filming a little video of, uh, you know, 30 seconds of your dinner church and sending it to your bishop, which I've done hundreds of times saying, hey, thank you for letting me be at this assignment. Here's a little bit of the fruit of our ministry together. And now that's, is that kissing up? No, that's leading up. That's leading up. Uh, and and so I think sometimes younger leaders, and I, I put in the category younger can be not younger in age, but it also could be younger in experience. So you can be 45, graduated from Luther Seminary and in your first assignment. That's what I mean by younger, that younger leaders need to learn to lead up well. Leading up well is no surprises. Leading up well is is keeping folks informed of what you're doing. Because I would say that if you lined up my judicatories over the 27 years that I've been here, they would tell you to a person that they were never surprised. They always knew, hey, we're thinking about buying a grocery store. <laughs> what do you, you know, what do you think? Uh, you know, those kinds of things. So one of the things I hear you doing is, particularly in your stories about Jesus and Wesley, John Wesley, is really rooting this work in the tradition. So, of course, Wesley is perhaps one of the greatest examples of someone who was, you know, who went outside the structures of the parish church and preached in the fields and did small groups and all of these things that were incredibly innovative in his own day. So, in many ways, for for Wesleyans and Methodists to do fresh expressions is the most traditional thing if you go back to Wesley. But can you speak a, a, a bit about how that anchoring into the tradition, you know, finding that usable past in our own traditions, even it may be centuries later in a very different context, how that can free up imagination and permission. Absolutely. Yeah. I sometimes, and I stole this from Len Sweet, I heard him use the phrase years ago, uh, the whole idea of turbocharging the tradition. You know, what, what, what does that look like? And so the idea is not necessarily the forms, but but the principles are there. And I think for all of us, whether it's in a more reformed tradition or a more Catholic tradition or, a, or a, you know, my, my Wesleyan Armenian tradition, th- there are these rich taproots that spring forward. They're almost begging for contemporary expressions of them. You know, what, is that, what does that look like and what does that mean? Mr. Wesley um, used to do these things called love feasts where they were testimony times. And it wasn't communion, but it was close, you know, and it, you know, so what does that look like? Uh, what does a 21st century expression of that look like? He has these statements throughout his journals where he says, uh, uh, after witnessing George Whitfield preach, he said, I determined to become more vile for the gospel. But then later he would write a field preaching 
Uh, I love the commodious room and the handsome pulpit and the leathered seat. And then he goes on eloquently talking about the chapel, but he says, but I should be cursed if I do not embrace field preaching. He recognized that there was a vileness about pub theology, you know, which is uh, some of the my friends, uh, I don't do it because I'm an alcoholic, but, you know, uh, 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 nothing wrong with having a pint in the Bible and having conversations. Uh, my buddy does a, a tattoo parlor church, uh, VR church. Michael Beck does a lot around VR, a virtual reality church. And I think for my tribe, those are the tap roots of field preaching and preaching houses and the foundry, which was a kind of this all-purpose facility in London where they would teach children to read, but also do medical clinics, but also do evangelism and, and disciple-making and small groups out of the foundry. So I think we sterilize our ministry when we don't reach back as we reach forward. We, we sterilize it because there's there's nothing of substance there of the 2,000-year rich tradition of the church. I do a lot of reading and research uh, and agonizing about the state of disciple-making in North America, in America, that in our post-COVID, in our political divisions, in our racial divisions, the, the quality and the character of a lot of disciples are coming into question, at least for folks like me. As I see folks embrace racist things or Christian nationalism, those kinds of things. And so it's interesting what's happening in, in a lot of pockets in the life of the church around making disciples. And it's, it speaks to your what you just said, Dwight. It's interesting that there are these voices, these kind of prophetic voices out there that are calling us back to the ancient practices in a very contemporary way. So you have people like John Mark Comer, Tyler Staten over in the Seattle, uh, Portland area. You, you, you have uh, uh, folks that are taking the work of Dallas Willard and Robert Mulholland and, and, and Ruth Haley Barton and, and it, uh, people like Rich Velotis down in Brooklyn. And they're calling us to this, to a life of Sabbath and solitude and stillness and silence. We didn't invent that stuff. That's a part of that rich taproot. And I'm finding uh, that pre-Christian people in post-Christendom America are attracted to that kind of stuff because they've, they've tried uh, a consumer approach to life. They've tried a, a hedonistic approach to life, and they're going, there, there's, it, it tastes like sawdust. It, it doesn't last. It's not compelling. And so you... You, you tell them to practice Lectio and they, 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 their head spins around on their axis in delight as they're connecting to God in, in rich, transcendent ways. So I think, yeah, we can't lose that, Dwight. We have to somehow turbocharge that and pull it into the 21st century and allow it to inform and in sometimes even direct our ministries. George, that's awesome. I love it. Thanks for sharing your stories with us, your journey. And uh, we're going to put a link to your website. So if people want to follow there or look at some of the pictures or imagine what the stories kind of look like on the ground, uh, please know we were talking before we started. Uh, 
your communities in, were in prayer for you as you continue mm-hmm. to pick up after the hurricanes. That there's a there's a lot of hard work there and people's lives that are that you're right in the midst of with that. So we thank you for that. Thank you. And next week we are going to go to some pioneer stories of people that are doing the real entrepreneurial stuff here in the U.S. And we encourage you to join us again next week. This episode of the Pivot Podcast was brought to you by Faith Lead. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to faithlead.org to gain access to our free resources. See you next time.